I'll be damned if people like myself if you're going to go away, you know, uh, quietly. Uh, that's that's just not an option. And I will continue to be this person. What happens when you meet one of your heroes? Shobha Day, writer, columnist, opinion shaper. I grew up reading Shobha Day's columns and her rather saucy novels when I was a teenager in Mumbai. And I recently managed to interview her for Masala Podcast, which was super exciting. Shobha Day is one of the most well-known women in India. She's a best-selling novelist, a journalist, an editor, a publisher, a mother, a grandmother. The list goes on. To me, Shobha always seemed like such a feisty and fabulous woman, always larger than life. And that's exactly how I found her to be in person. I hope you enjoyed this interview with Shobha Day. Sharam, but the me, chi chi. I'm Sangeeta Pillai and this is the Masala Podcast, a Spotify original where we talk about all those things that we're not supposed to talk about as South Asian women. Sex, sexuality, periods, menopause, mental health, nipple hair, shame and many more taboos. Join me around my virtual kitchen table as I talk with some incredible women from around the world, exploring what it means to be a South Asian feminist today. Hello, Shobha. Hey, hi there. Welcome to our home. And welcome to Masala Podcast. It is an absolute honor and delight and honor again to have you on Masala Podcast. Thank you. Thank you. I'm sitting across uh, Shobha's wonderful dining table, which is her workspace. Uh, We're chatting about all things South Asian women um, and hopefully lots of amazing things. I grew up in Mumbai as a sort of very naive 13-year-old in a very traditional family in Mumbai. You were the first feminist I had come across. I didn't even know the word feminist, if that makes sense. But you were talking about sex and you were talking about strong women. And you were talking about all of these things that I had never heard of in my upbringing. So to me, you were the original feminist. (laughs) Do you identify as a feminist? I have mixed feelings about that word because it's a loaded term. Uh, There are political implications in defining yourself as a feminist, which I'm not always in agreement with. I would say I am all for equality. I take equality for granted. I am all for the underdog, so that underdog can often be a, a man. So feminist, by definition, comes with a set of connotations. I don't always subscribe to all of it. But if you ask me, am I pro-women? Oh, yes, I am and will remain so and will fight for what I believe is a woman's absolute right, which is to have uh, a space to call her own as much as sovereignty over all of herself, her, her mind, her body, her emotions, her finances. So to own yourself as a woman on all levels. If that makes me a feminist, happy to go along with it. But the whole feminist movement uh, as it's defined in the West is not really something that Southeast Asian women need to buy into because our way of life is very different. 
our family life is very different our priorities are very different and uh, uh, most importantly our constitution the constitution in india actually guarantees us the the very same rights the very same freedoms if women are not aware of them that's a different story but there's no such thing as wage discrimination on paper that it may be happening is again uh, the narrative is different it is more, more to do with uh, social conditions but certainly legally we are protected all the way do you think things have gotten better for women in india over the last say 30 40 years it's hard to say better on many levels in terms of uh, access to education uh, access to livelihoods access to a better life in terms of the opportunities we have women who have excelled in virtually every conceivable field you can think of i'm very proud of the all women crew that flew the longest flight very recently the an air india flight from san francisco and into uh, bangalore the the commander captain the cockpit crew everybody uh, all female so there are those there are women scientists there are women educationists there are women who are in very powerful positions in banking almost uh, 10 or 12 uh, large banks in india headed by women uh, we have women in politics who are very strong figures uh, there are many women in the entertainment world who are boss ladies who are not just um, bimbos or people who are doing secondary roles in even in production of movies and entertainment so in terms of role models there's no dearth of role models in india it's the disparity in terms of class structures and um, it's the rich versus the middle class versus the poor that keeps women down more than anything else and of course this class and in india there's always caste which is the other big factor So would you say even from your personal point of view compared to sort of when you were growing up as a young woman do you think life's a lot easier for your daughters for example they can take a lot more for granted than i couldn't but then i'm not the typical indian middle class lady of my vintage i'm 73 years old so when i was their age that's that was a long long time ago and i pretty much live by my own rules though i come from an extremely conservative family my father was a bureaucrat it was not a, a liberal kind of a background to grow up in it was not bohemian or any of it so if i chose to define my life by my own terms it's because i chose not that it was something that was sanctioned endorsed encouraged far from it I have been a feminist my entire life. It runs through my blood, my body. It defines me. It powers me. It shapes me. Yet, I didn't even know about the existence of the word feminist until I reached my 30s. Is there even a word for feminism in Hindi? Or Marathi? Or Malayalam? There was no reason for that word in my life, in my culture. in the family that i grew up in names like jumain gray and gloria steinem would have been incomprehensible foreign words even if someone had said them to me which no one did feminism 
wasn't a thing in the India that I grew up in, in the 80s. Girls were born. Girls were sent to school. Girls were married off at the first available opportunity. No one spoke to any of us about feminism. I have fought very hard to become a feminist. A feminist is who I was unknowingly, who I am and who I always will be. Shobha, you wear many, many hats. Um, I mean, I probably won't even be able to define all of them. So you're an amazing writer, a novelist, an influencer. You, you know, you're a public figure. You're a mother. You're a wife. Your grandmother as well? Is that seven, true? yes. Seven, here we yes, go. Yes, yes. So which of those roles feels most you or which of those many roles fit you the best? I'm often asked this and I'm always stumped for a response. I'm also a columnist in the national papers and a publisher. Uh, I like to think of myself as a very good editor, a very strict editor at that. But why should one have to choose? Why should I compartmentalize myself? All of it, all these roles make me the person I am today for better or worse. I don't necessarily weigh each role and say which one is the one that appeals to me the most. I'd be less of a woman if even one of those roles was taken away from me, I suppose. So I value each one dearly. But my writing, yes, is something that to me is a very intrinsic part of my mental and emotional makeup. And the writing wouldn't be what it is if I didn't have the family and the security blankets that I get being a part of a family, having raised a large family myself. uh, It's what nurtures me the most. So if at all I had to pick and all of it is interrelated anyway, it's family and writing. A close, a close, close race or Mm. not. And one makes the other, like yeah, you say. completely, yeah. Is it possible for women to have it all? We have been told that, initially we were told, yes, you can have it all and you can be the career woman and the mother and the daughter. And then we were told that actually there is always something that gets left behind. So, you know, particularly on kind of social media and things, as women, we're always comparing ourselves to other women who are more successful, more attractive, more glamorous. And is it possible or, or do we as women have to pick one part of, one part of this? This was a kind of a uh, con, a tagline created in the 80s about a woman who can have it all. Well, I don't think a man can have it all either. I mean, nobody on earth can have it all. It would be a very dull world <laughs> if we all got what we wanted or even <laughs> 10 of us got everything that we ever desired. <laughs> it would show a spectacular lack of ambition. So yes, something always gives. Now, the, the the trick is really to maintain some sort of a balance in your life. For me, the B word is very, very important. And it's not as if men don't give up a lot of perks, privileges, if family matters sufficiently to them. And I think increasingly I see that men are as involved and as caring as the nurturing mother figure of our youth, my youth. Did I have to give up many things? Of course I did. Um, To give you a 
quick recent example because that demonstrates it best. I was invited to a night of ideas being hosted by the French embassy in New Delhi. Uh, the invitation came from the ambassador himself. And the, a night of ideas is something that's uh, celebrated across the world where they have uh, writers, poets, artists, uh, thinkers, intellectuals, novelists uh, across a platform where they discuss what's important to the world at that moment. It was something I was... I would have loved to be a part of. Why lie? It was an honor and uh, it would have been exciting. But it clashed with my husband's plan for Goa. It is his birthday the next day and we I could have rejigged a lot of things, but I can't rejig someone's birthday to which I'm committed. And it mattered more to me to be with him in Goa for his birthday, though it's not the big birthday, not a special birthday, but it's something we are both looking forward to. So I did have to give up on that. And I was just thinking to myself, would a, a counterpart, a male counterpart do the same to celebrate his wife's birthday or would he somehow manage to accommodate both or tell her, why don't you come along with me and, yeah. you know, we can yeah. combine the two things. But that wouldn't work in my case. Yeah. And I had to choose and I chose. So it's going to be Goa. And I guess what you're saying is it's an individual choice for, for you yes. as a woman that is more important. And so yes. each of us has to make that call absolutely. at whatever point absolutely. in our life. Right? And there, there could be so many wonderful, exactly. fabulous, tempting career offers as there have been in my life, which I've not had a moment's hesitation to turn away from because you must know what your priorities are and what's important to you. So for all of this, the um, that very powerful word called choice plays a huge role, not just in women's lives, but in men's lives as well. So choice is something that is important to me. It's not always the line of least resistance, but I also know that when I pick something, I don't regret it. I may pay a huge cost, but I do not regret it. I do not look back and say, as a woman, had I done this, uh, and not that, maybe my life would have been different. Of course, it would have been different. But do I regret that choice? I think that is key to your mental well-being. Absolutely. Shobha, yours is one of the most distinct voices that I know of in India. Um, and I wondered when it was the first time when you, you found that voice because that's such a crucial part of our, our voices as writers and as women. Do you remember? No, I guess I was always born with this voice. <laughs> <laughs> I never had to actively think about it. I didn't actively go out to use it either. It was something so natural to me. The question of speaking up has uh, been a right I've taken for granted. So the I don't need to deconstruct any aspect of my life to find that mm. one defining moment because frankly there is none mm. uh, as far as I know ever since I was a very young girl mm. um, that voice had to be used and most of the time it was used not in a narrow or a very selfish way it was just things I felt strongly about uh, society at large or my own immediate environment that I felt the need to say something that was my truth. It may not have found too many takers, but it was important for me to say it like it is. And that continues. So this question of being positioned as a voice that matters or as a voice that counts, 
is something that I find is an imposition. It's mm. not something that I have desired for myself. But now, having found myself in this situation, I do extend it to issues that matter a lot to me. But 90% of the time, I turn down offers to appear on public platforms and become the kind of public a figure who has an opinion on anything and everything and must be heard at all costs, not at all. Like this afternoon, when you were here, when the call came from a, um, a prominent TV channel, it's about uh, judgment, which delivered by a lady judge in a Nagpur bench uh, in the high court. And she she's talked about only skin-to-skin -skin contact and penetration being... Uh, regarded as uh, sexual assault and anything else that doesn't involve penetration and doesn't involve skin-to-skin -skin contact is is groping and it's really okay. So if the, the case was about a man groping a young girl's breasts and a judge thinks that this is okay, you know, it's not an assault. Well, you know, one can debate that, but when I'm asked to come on a, uh, and talk about that, yes, I will, because it has uh, tremendous implications. Absolutely. It's like a license to men to grab the, any woman walking past and uh, squeeze whichever body part they feel like and get away with it. Absolutely. And if a judge is saying that, that is just inconceivable. Yeah, so, yeah it is. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, yes. Um, voice. Um, I think for me, I asked you that because for me, it's been a long journey to find my own voice. I think it's taken me a long time. So... It's amazing that you were born with it, <laughs> sounds like. I'm very inspired by that. What would you say to other women to whom maybe it isn't as easy to find a voice? So if you've grown up being told that, you know, your opinions don't matter, keep quiet. And then that whole process. Why is it important, do you think, for every woman to find her voice, whatever that may be, quiet, loud? Yes, um Suppressing women's voices is like a universal conspiracy to make sure that they're not heard. It's not new. It's been there since time immemorial. So there's a conditioning in most societies, more so it's very prevalent in Southeast Asian uh, societies where women's roles themselves need to be redefined for ourselves and for our children and the children after our children. So the question of Asserting yourself by using your voice, it's not at all easy. And most times, within family itself, it's very difficult. Families which are structured around uh, a patriarchal system where only a male voice is the only voice that deserves to be heard or is heard, a girl is never encouraged to speak up because also it is believed that if we give, give her, grant her too much liberty, she will not be able to adapt and adjust to her married life and she'll be um, considered too much for her in-laws to handle if she's going to be shooting a mouth off and causing trouble for herself and for the family. So there's never any active encouragement for a woman to express her opinions. I think that's changing slowly but very surely. I can see the change in the next generation and Hopefully, more of us will be able to start a chorus across Southeast Asia and across the world. But it's tough. And you have to know when you are raise, raising 
your voice for something that's very crucial and important to you, that there will always be a price to be paid. There is always that trade-off. Are you prepared to pay it? Or are you going to say, yes, I'm going to raise my voice. Yes, I'm going to say what I want to say. But no, I will not be responsible for it. And if anything doesn't go right, well, you know, I'm going to play victim. No, it doesn't work like that. Then stand by what you've said. Have the courage. Have the you know, sense of conviction that I will stand by my words. What I, what I stand for is out there and I'm not going to retract and whatever the price may be, I'm willing to pay it. Till a woman reaches that stage of independence of her own thinking, I don't see that changing very much. But for all that to happen, you have to be financially independent from a very young age. Absolutely. Um, because otherwise, there is no opportunity to have a voice even. Absolutely, absolutely. Who gets to have a voice and who doesn't? To ask to have a voice, to think you should be heard. You have to believe that you have value. I was brought up to believe that my only value lay in the sort of husband I could get. So for me, even contemplating that I could have a voice was inconceivable. The act of finding my voice came much later when I was in my 30s. My voice came when I moved countries, when I started to notice the Indianness in my voice, in a sea of British accents, going from Geordie to Glaswegian. When I first started this podcast, I struggled to believe in my own voice. Did all audio presenters have to sound like they worked at the BBC? All clipped and posh and sounding like they'd just stepped out of Oxbridge. When I first recorded my episode, I could really hear my own voice. A mix of Mumbai meets East London via Kerala. But slowly, I started to like my own voice. Even when the W and the V sounded mixed up, it felt okay. My journey of first finding my voice, then starting to like my own voice, it was a long journey. So who gets to have a voice and who doesn't? Um, a lot of your novels, Shobha, there was, I remember reading them and there was a fair bit of sex in it. Was that easy to do when you were writing? Was that, did it feel natural? Did it feel alien? Did it feel like people were going to judge you or anything like that when you were writing them? Well, again, and this, I'm beginning to sound boring to myself, but I didn't stop to think how you other know. people are going to react to yeah. it. It's the book I wanted to write. Yeah, and therefore you and wrote it. And therefore I wrote it. And it had some of, some of the early novels had a lot. They were called uh, Bodice Rippers by the British Press, which they were. Uh, I would have preferred Choli Ripper. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Bodice Rippers they were. And uh, I continued to write as I choose to write, mm. some books may have explicit sex, mm. some may not, some may be totally chaste and uh, without any uh, any kind of need to. It's not something that is superimposed. It yeah. either comes naturally as part of the narrative or it doesn't. Yeah. So you don't set out to shock. I didn't. Yeah. But that I managed to shock is a different story altogether. And I used to find it a little 
strange that why should sex be something so scary? But it is. I think in most societies, traditional societies like ours in particular, a woman's sexuality is seen as uh, something that scares the hell out of most people. And uh, she's seen as, uh, uh, she's judged. Yes. So as I must have been, I, I got the most vitriolic reviews and comments. That was pre-trolling days was it was before social media, mm-hmm. right? So there'd be letters and reviews in mainstream newspapers. And uh, did it bother me? No, I, it actually didn't. I think I've, I've, in retrospect, I've always been pretty secure in my own thinking, in my own skin. And uh, I've never lived to win applause or to get validation from externally. As long as I was okay with my choices and my family was okay with the choices I made, life was good. And that's how it remains. Picking up from what you just said, why do you think women's sexuality is so challenging to the world? In a society such as ours, and most, I think, Southeast Asian societies, which are structured in a very uh, macho, patriarchal way, a woman's sexuality is always to be, in quotes, protected. Her sexual being has to be repressed. Her desires have to be suppressed because a woman who is seen as a wanton woman, a sexually adventurous person, a sexually active, hungry person, uh, becomes a threat to the way the family structure exists. If she's all of that, then she cannot be a good uh, wife, a good uh, mother, a good daughter-in-law. And she's groomed to be just these three roles from the time she's maybe eight or ten. She's always told that she needs to conform and fit into this role, and it's all for her good. So she strays outside of that, then of course it is a challenge. Uh, where does she fit in? If she's not any of that, then what is she? So then you can label her, you can call her an infomaniac, you can call her uh, a harlot, you can call her a prostitute, you can call her what you want. And she will be shunned, not just by her own family, but by other women, uh, relatives, friends, colleagues. Whereas a man with the same kind of predilections would be called in a way which is full of... uh, admiration, a stud, you know. Uh, the polite word, if that, would be philanderer, but nothing worse. Yeah. So when Larry King died, it's the, a lot of men were so impressed that he, he had married eight times. And all the obituaries refer to his marriages, that he was married eight times as if it's some kind of a crown to wear. But had a woman been married eight times, I think... Elizabeth Taylor comes close to that record, uh, she would have been looked at very differently and judged very differently. So, yes, our sexuality is something that even as we as women are not very comfortable with. Uh, We are ridden with guilt and we need to constantly tell ourselves to sort of calm down and uh, kill that desire or an expression of that desire in whichever form we are even guilty of our own fantasies. Um, there was something I wanted to talk to you about age. Um, now, your 
I think one of the sexiest women that I know, gorgeous, attractive. I mean, you're sitting here looking, you know, and I look at you, your, your hair and your skin and you're beautiful and you're in your 70s. Why does society tell older women to go away quietly? We're told to sort of wear pale colors and to sort of, I don't know, pray and lose all interest in anything vaguely interesting. Why do you think that is? Aging is something uh, very uh, looked at in a very cruel light, especially with women. There is a, a question of uh, judging women far more harshly after a certain age, after their sell-by date is over, uh, like their cows put to pasture. Whereas an older man who's, who's called a rake, and or, you know he's called a rue, a rake, there are lots of very lovely words for, a uh, woman's just called a hag bag, I mean, or someone who's trying to compete with a much younger woman in terms of how society looks at her or how she walks into a room and who's looking at her. Why, why are they looking at her in the first place? So women are expected to turn invisible or turn into little old ladies, harmless, who will sit there and sort of knitting booties for their grandchildren or busying themselves with embroidery. And in India, the, the actual, the history of women of a certain vintage is not that terrible at all because they do graduate to a completely different level and plane within their own families. Uh, they're venerated. They are looked at as dadima, you know, the wise lady. Uh, people, uh, people turn to older women for guidance and treat them with a lot more respect. But yes, uh, for me, writing the books I did on age specifically, I wrote a book when I turned 50, I wrote one at 60, and I wrote one at 70. Uh, which said 70 into hell with it, was to free women from that uh, terrible uh, age as a cage, you know, being, being put into that box and told that, um, you know, you really don't rate, you don't count, you're irrelevant. Uh, why don't you just sort of vaporize or something like that? Uh, so I'll be damned if people like myself, if we're going to go away, you know, uh, quietly, uh, that's that's just not an option, and I will continue to be this person uh, for as long as I can. And this person is not someone who's doing something that's not a part of our natural self. It's not that I would, in on any level, wish to turn fifty again, or even try and look fifty again, or reverse my aging process artificially at all. This is who I am at seventy-three. Take it or leave it. So I would hope that message of being yourself at whichever age uh, is the message that I want to convey. It's not about looking younger. It's about accepting age and saying, you know, this is me and I think I'm the best I can be at my age and you should feel the same way about yourself at whichever age. What do you think are the advantages of growing older, because we're not told that at all. So society tells us in magazines and TV tell us, oh, look younger and wear this cream and wear this dress and all that. But there is a lot of beauty and a lot of joy to aging, right? What do you think that is? Well, truthfully speaking, it frees you from the whole um, predatory game of um, being in the market, as it were, uh, even if you have not lost interest in yourself as a sexual person, you're not in a committed relationship, even then, 
it somehow frees you from the pressure of constantly having to look a certain way. And uh, also, you have much more time. You have time to pursue things you may not have had at the age of 50 even. Or, or you're, You are truly, truly liberated uh, from all that may have kept you back, kept you down as a much younger woman. Uh, you are where you want to be. And hopefully you have the finances to make those kind of choices for yourself. And it's liberating on a lot of levels. You don't have to be competitive. You don't need to compete. And if you so desire, you can go off and go, you know, if you're fit enough, uh, go to the Himalayas and trek, which maybe in your 50s you wouldn't think of doing because, you know, you have responsibilities. At 70 plus, your main responsibility is yourself. And maybe the partner that if you're blessed to have a partner, as I am, you know, touch wood, then it's really the two of you looking after one another and having a lot of fun together. Because a lot of the old turbulence and anxieties are now ironed out and you've dealt with them and you can be entirely yourself. So to me, being 70 plus is a boon. It's anything but a curse. That's such a different way to look at it because, I mean, I'm 48 and if someone says to me, oh, you don't look 48, my instinctive reaction, oh, thank you so much, as if looking 48 is a bad thing, you know? But we are conditioned to do this. The young, younger is equal to better somehow. And it's so heartening for me to sit here and listen to you and you're vibrant and you're, you know, productive and beautiful and all the, you know, all the other things. So it's, it's really, really heartening. What, um, what I wanted to also ask you is what does success look like for us now as women in 2021? What is that? The S word, success, I'm always uh, wary of it yeah. because it's something so very subjective yeah. and every person has a, a different yardstick by which to um, judge or even to look back on their lives and say, ask, have I had a successful existence? I don't think we should actually do it because that can generate anxiety of a kind because you're using your own life and often comparing it to the lives of others. Whereas success should be something that you determine for yourself. And it doesn't have anything to do with uh, what the world perceives. It doesn't, for me, whether I write as I have 21 books or I write five more or I don't write those five more books, it's not going to impact how I see myself. So are you happy with the choices you've made? Can you sleep well at night? Do you wake up in the morning optimistic, saying, here's another day and let me see what I can do with it and let me make the most of the remaining years of my life and enjoy myself, laugh more than regret and uh, postpone tears if possible. To me, that would be success. When I look back at all, all my life, seven decades of it, and if the plus, plus points, the high points, 
defeat the lows, and everybody has their lows and terrible moments, then I'd say, yeah, okay, Shobha Day, you're doing all right. If you were to go back to Shobha Day at age, I don't know, 27 or 30, is there any advice you'd give from your where you are now? Well, I would say to look at the tapestry of life that's ahead of you and uh, take ridiculous risks because that's the time you can and you must. If you don't take those risks, you'll always be thinking, if I if I'd done this at 27, if I'd done that at 30, I was offered this. I met a man at 30 who I should have married and I don't know why I let that go. He was the man I truly loved. If I'd taken the job offer and gone off to Venezuela, my life would have been different. Well, you should have done it, honey. So I feel risk is a very attractive four-letter word. And uh, the only advice that I hate giving advice because no one ever gave me any advice that I ever paid the slightest attention to, I'd say if you try and get to know yourself much better, stop judging yourself, stop questioning everything or overanalyzing everything and uh, look at life as really like a fantastic a soiree or a carnival and uh, think what it must be like to be on top of that giant wheel and looking at a city at your feet which is glittering and glowing and all the thousands and thousands of fascinating, amazing adventures that you still have to experience and the millions of people out there who you'd love to meet, connect with, learn something from, share something with, the food that remains uneaten, the dreams, the movies, the songs, I mean, the wine. Yeah, you know, the promise of life, you should cherish every moment. So essentially your advice is take as many risks as you want, whatever your age, and eat all the food and drink all the wine and have all the adventures that you want to, right? You make the most of it, you know. Every moment should be seized. Every moment should be grabbed. Every moment should be in its own way. I don't mean in a mad, crazy way celebrated. I don't mean you go out saying, hurrah, 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 I've just got myself a new iPhone or something. But why not if that gives you a kick? I mean, there has to be a certain mindfulness, even at a very young age, to uh, count all the wonderful things that you have and the wonderful things that you can work towards, to work for. And just keep that mind positive. I think so too. Shobha, thank you so much for that very inspiring, elevating, sometimes challenging conversation, you know, because you. that's the whole point of, you know, talking to someone like you. You're amazing. Thank uh, you. No, it was fantastic. I enjoyed talking to you because it's good to talk to an informed interviewer, someone who bothers to know a little more about the subject, does his or her homework, comes to you prepared with questions that draw you out, that make you think. So you've done a great job. So thank you. Thank you so much, Shobha, for being on Masala Podcast. Thank you. If you've been affected by anything we've talked about in this episode, please head to the show notes where I've listed some information about organizations which can offer help and support. I'm Sangeeta Pillai. Thank you for listening to the Masala Podcast.
a Spotify original. Masala Podcast is part of my platform, Soul Sutras. What's that all about? Soul Sutras is a network for South Asian women, a safe space to tell our stories, a place to reclaim our bodies, to tackle taboos within our culture, to be exactly who we want to be. Get in touch and tell me your stories about your taboos. Check out my website, soulsutras.co.uk or get in touch via email at soulsutras.co.uk. I'm on Twitter and Instagram. Just look for Soul Sutras. Masala Podcast was created and produced by me, Sangeeta Pillai, edited by Orbis, the studio, opening music by Sunny Robertson. Besharam, Batamiz, Gandhi, Hi Hi, Bad Betty.